Hey guys, Jared here, CEO and founder of Luminous. This is the Ops Unfiltered podcast. I started Ops Unfiltered because I know what it feels like to be in operations and e-commerce. You're handling every single part of the business. It's easy to feel siloed in. It's easy to feel like you have to find a solution for everything. I hope that by bringing raw conversations from other operators in e-commerce that you can extract some value and not feel alone. Many of the operations leaders in e-commerce are running into the same problems that you're running into. So I hope that maybe their solutions can be your solutions. Maybe you can feel not so alone in the warehouse, in purchasing, in your supply chain. So that's my hope. I hope this can be valuable for all of you. Let's dive in to have some raw conversations. Why do you create? Growing up, I was always a, like a tinkerer. I think it started with how it works and then over time adapted it to like how it's made. I remember when I was a kid, I built a half pipe in my parents' basement. I designed like the, the structures and I pitched my dad. I'm like, I want to build this. And I became the president of the fraternity. And it's like, yes, I threw parties and stuff and that was always fun, but I learned a little bit about like leadership. So then I just like packed my car and I moved to Utah. Why Utah? It was a good economy to start businesses. Because I didn't have a degree, I couldn't get like an engineering job. So a lot of inbound leads and they were big names calling in like McDonald's and Microsoft and Jeez. stuff. And I remember one call came in and, and it was the head of product at IBM. And so I convinced him to give me enough money to buy a computer and then a 3D printer and a SolidWorks license. And he gave that to me. And I was then able to go and start my company out of my apartment. Are you kidding me? What do you attribute your success to? Mainly probably because like, I would say. Today we have an amazing guest, a fellow Utah entrepreneur. Jason. Thank you. Are you going to like overlay a pause? There? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. That's a good point though. All the content out there, all the gurus and all of the, you know, like the click funnels to buy my uh, class or whatever, um, are, are there's not as many focused on what we deal with. Yeah. And they're, they're but, all marketing and, you know, hack away type stuff versus like the actual setting up a, like a proper supply chain and good operations. Yeah. Or how about like actually developing a product or building yeah. a brand? Like it's the, I feel like what goes viral and what actually, what most people consume on LinkedIn or like mm -hmm. on YouTube, mm -hmm. it's all around. It's like, I built my Amazon FBA brand from like zero to 2 million. Like here's a screenshot of my results. Like, like none of his advice typically is relevant mm, in yeah. like how to actually build a product. Or, and can you get past 2 million or your yes. operations messy and you limit your scale? Exactly. That's probably the problem. Exactly. <laughs> so just to, just to qualify Jason, um, cause I, genuinely have a lot of respect for you thank you um i yeah, probably because i likewise i understand too, you know? i understand what you do oh yeah um not You've like you it. do but um so jason is from Cluconics, and that my understanding of that it's an end-to-end -end product development company that brings your ideas to life mm -hmm. like that's the general pitch he's the co-founder of dorai mm -hmm. i would just describe that as like an innovative self-drying home goods brand mm -hmm. with really classy design that's why i really like it um, and he's the host of the Founders Field Notes podcast, which I've been on. It's a blast. And co-founder of Omos Golf, yeah. right? Yep. That's a new one. Nice. Very entry-level supply chain in that one. But yeah. It's working, kind of. So <laughs> that, for, I guess, in layman's terms, 
Jason has a lot of experience from product inception and that whole process all the way until like getting the goods into the warehouse and like mm-hmm. starting fulfillments. Um, I would, I would definitely say you're an expert there. So yeah, um, got a lot going on. So I'm super excited to dive into a couple of different topics. Mm-hmm. Um, I respect you and your career path. Um, and I have a lot of interest in what you do as well. And I think the viewers of this podcast or in these clips are going to find a lot of value. Um, so I want to start by getting behind the psyche of mm-hmm. you. So I have a belief that e-commerce and product development in general, they attract like a, a certain type of person. They're typically like anti-corporate, anti-dress code, like... So every time I see you, it's it's hoodie, backwards hat, sneakers. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> so I don't need to think about it in the morning. Yeah, exactly. If my laundry's clean, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's top down in my drawer. You know what I mean? Go to the next shirt in line. Nice. Yeah. So so why 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 do you create? Um, I mean, uh, probably. Growing up, I was always a, like a tinkerer, you know? I think growing up, I'd always get something for like Christmas. I would get a Christmas gift and I would take it apart and see what's inside. Like that was something that my parents would get like frustrated with me about it. Interesting. But I would always learn so much. And I look back and I think there are so many things that I would have like buckets of guts of stuff that I've had over time. Really? Yeah. And I'm very ADHD, like very, uh, um, to a fault, you know, where I have, I have to work on it quite a bit and I work with like therapists and stuff and, you know, to try to figure out how to control and manage my ADHD. But I think it's like, you know, I've gotten a lot of value out of that. That's fascinating right there. I, I I don't think that's very common, honestly. I I have a brother-in-law like that. He, one time he, literally took up how took apart a car like yeah oh i did i got to cars it. eventually too oh, yeah no way. yeah and motors and stuff yeah so like what what about that is fascinating is it just like how everything fits together is it like the understanding of how it actually works like yeah what, how it works it? you know i think it started with how it works and then over time uh adapted it to like how it's made and i think looking back to later in high school and stuff when that show like how it's made came out i remember Uh looking back and being fascinated with that also going to college i had terrible grades in school and i applied to so many colleges i was almost like "Eh, i'm not going to get into one screw it i got into this school called southern polytechnic state university Uh engineering school like seven thousand students small you know honestly it was like the best it it worked out so much in my favor. I feel like it was the best place for me to be in that part of my life in Why? education. Why was that? I mean, for a few things. So when I got to orientation, I didn't know what major to do at all. I had no idea. And I remember sitting in the auditorium and they started like, you know, announcing like, okay, we're going to start moving into the areas depending on your major. And they started listing off majors and I was like <laughs> listening and they were like mechanical engineering. I was like, oh yeah, that's it. So you just like because I knew I like to take stuff apart ah, and like build stuff, and you know I like as a kid I always always took things apart, but also like I I remember when I was a kid I built a half pipe in my parents' basement, so like I designed like the the structure, I designed the the you know the drawings, and I pitched my dad on like 
I want to build this, you know, we have this wow. room, it, it'll fit in this room. The ceilings are this high, I could build it this tall. Here's the, the structure, here's my material list, you know, and this is would have been in eighth grade. We moved down to uh, Georgia and um, yeah, so, so I think naturally I just always like was drawn towards that. So it, it's so fascinating about the education system because like I'm very similar to you. I I dropped out of college. I actually never really mm-hmm. found. Oh, I dropped out later college. in college. I oh, did. I, go, nice. I I got <laughs> I got. But but the thing that was perfect is so like high school and elementary school, middle school. I always remember you know feeling like the teachers would be concerned about me and stuff. You know what I mean? Like oh, he's not doing well. Oh, and it's like, well, I'm not a good test taker because I don't give, I don't care about the subject matter. See, I, I feel like e-commerce and product development, it, it attracts these types of minds. Like I'm nowhere near that. Like I'm a mm. little bit different, but mm. it's, it's like these really talented individuals, but it was it, like, there's no way to cultivate it in mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. So you just like get bad grades. And yeah. You, and you, you, prob- you, you probably feel thought you were stupid. like, yeah, exactly. You feel stupid. Yeah. I, but that's why the school was great is because the classes were very hands-on. Mm. You would like go into a machine shop and then you would go in like one of the classes. I remember it was manufacturing technology and they basically went through all the different manufacturing processes and taught about the machinery and like the applications and all that stuff. And I was fascinated by it. Wow. Um, and then the CAD classes, learning CAD and SOLIDWORKS and stuff. And I basically pick and chose all the classes that were interesting to me and they all were the supporting knowledge around building products and engineering products. Uh, so, okay, when when did you start monetizing your um, disability well, and passion to But create? I, I the first thing I monetized wasn't development. It, uh, it was uh like my entrepreneurial side kicked in when I had this bar well actually it really started when i was in my uh, fraternity and i became the president of the fraternity when things kind of fell apart and it was small and i was like oh i stepped up at a young age and like you just grabbed power and it's like yes i threw parties and stuff and that was always fun but i learned a little bit about like leadership because if i could get a bunch of like frat bros to like do charity events and stuff and like (laughs) raise money and do this stuff and it's like well if i can pay people then i can you know lead people to you know make money and do Mm -hmm. stuff. Right. So with that, I started actually, there was a bar we would always go to and they had a back room and I would worked out deals with the bar owner that on like Tuesdays and Thursdays and stuff, I would put together parties for the other fraternities. So the other fraternities were paying me to throw parties. So I was like, Oh, I can make money doing, I don't need a boss, you know? So that was like my first taste of entrepreneurship. Um, and then I like, it was like my fifth year and I had like 18 hours left of my degree. And there oh it was all stuff I didn't want to take. And I was like sick of, uh, sick of class. Like I was sick of school. I was sick of it. It's like, I mean, I can stay here for like another year and, you know, get a degree, but then I'm going to be like engineering HVAC units, you know, or something right, like that. Exactly. Like that's not what I want to do. So then I just like packed my car and I moved to Utah. Inch. Okay. Why Utah, right? Yeah, why Why Utah? <laughs> it was a good economy to start businesses. And that's what I had read online. And I had a buddy here. So I had one in. So I had a, a friend of mine moved here and he was like snowboarding and stuff. And I was like... What, what year was this? This would have been 20... 
11. Oh, wow. Okay. End of okay. 2011 going into 2012. So, well, great decision. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hopefully you bought a house back then. No. <laughs> no, I was broke. I like literally had a Subaru and I think I had like three grand in my bank account wow. from just like side hustle stuff, you know? Um, okay. But yeah, that was, that was a good move. I, I got a job at a ski resort and ski bummed it, which is fantastic. Okay. So you just, you ski bum. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to build on the side when you first got I, here? I, when I got here, I was thinking I could make a, a snowboard company. Oh. So I engineered, which I never got to build. I engineered a snowboard press and you're stuff. Gonna, you're going to do that one day, aren't you? No way. <laughs> not, not, not enough. Uh, I don't know. I felt like there's a market cap and stuff. But the, but the mm. big thing with it was um, I, I enjoyed the process of engineering like a, a homemade uh, press with like fire hoses and mm. stuff. And okay. Like, yeah, so that was cool. But um, that was that only lasted so long. After I worked at the ski resort, I got a job at with Scott Paul. Yeah, at Armor Active. I know of him. Yeah, so at that job though, because I didn't have a degree, I couldn't get like an engineering job. You know, it would be hard for me to get a job doing that. So I got a sales job, and I would do sales for him. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, so because I, I could sell Armor Active. That was that was a phone case. It was like a, a, a let's see, they like. make like the tablet enclosures that you see outside oh, of meeting okay, rooms, okay. you know, like yeah, like that, for example. That's like mm. something we would make, the one for where you schedule meeting rooms on and uh-huh. they enclose iPads and stuff. So it was a B2B security enclosures for tablets. Got it. Yeah. And that, and he was one of the first movers in that space. I, wait, was, I, didn't, I didn't know you did sales. Wait, so well, I did, I did sales for a very short amount of time. I did sales for maybe like a month and a half. And then what started happening is these, you know, and a lot of people were calling in, like it was all inbound leads because he got iPadEnclosures.com. Oh, so everybody wow. was searching iPad enclosure and he would be the first to pop up. Um, so a lot of inbound leads and there were big names calling in like McDonald's and Microsoft and Jeez. stuff. And I remember one call came in and it was the head of product at IBM. And he's like, I need this. And I was like, well, we don't have that, but I can probably make it for you. <laughs> and I, and I went home that night and I still had a student license on SolidWorks and I catted up exactly what he asked for. And then the next day I went to Scott in the morning and I was like, hey, so this dude called in yesterday and we like looked him up on LinkedIn. He's like, oh, the, he's legit, right? And um, and I showed him and I pulled out my computer. I was like, well, I engineered this last night. This is what he was asking for. Do you think we could like sell him it and like make these for them? And he's like, you did that? I was like, yeah. So then eventually what happened is he realized that it was an opportunity for me to be like an in-house engineer and mm-hmm. do custom projects and yeah. get bigger customers because of it. Oh, that is so sick. So he gave me the opportunity to monetize and be the entre- or like be the in-house engineer and create a department and and create custom products. It's and it's so awesome that it was like I don't know Scott personally. He yeah. seems like a like a goofy sort of but like, like very accepting mm-hmm. giving. Oh, he ins- he inspired so me. Awesome. So like everybody sees the weird Scott, but I think back to the Scott he gave me a chance to like really, um, he gave me a sandbox to learn it and get paid mm. doing it. You know what I mean? That's invaluable. Yeah. So I did that That's for so like awesome. a few years and then really I didn't get to, I, and, and then let's see, it would have been 2014. They, he sold that company and I didn't have any interest in being there mm. after that. Or like really I had already thinking about like, okay, I, I kind of want to start a product development and manufacturing sourcing business. Is a service. What, what year was this again? This had been 2014. So it was like, 2014. like right. almost 10 years ago. And that's what I did. So I convinced him to give me 
enough money to buy a computer and then a 3D printer and a oh, SolidWorks man. license. And he gave that to me. And I was then able to go and uh, start my company out of my apartment. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And then I would just do CAD work as a service until I, over time, built, like, my team. Okay, okay. So, you and, and this is what is now Klugonix. Yeah. Today, right? Okay. Yeah. What, what was it called back then? Klugonix. Oh, nice. Yeah, same name. Cool. Yeah, so I kind of got stuck with it. It's a weird name, but whatever. Okay, so you you take this experience, mm-hmm. uh, this sandbox experience of being an engineer, like catting yeah. up people. Well, the valuable part is a lot of the stuff we produced was American made. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of FaceTime reviewing engineering files with factories and engineers at factories. So I would get so much free critiquing on my designs and how to design for manufacturing. Yeah. So that was like a free, like another layer of free Which education. Is, that is so valuable. As somebody yeah. who has actually developed yeah. a product, it's it's hard. Like, it's yeah. easy to just CAD something up, like a concept, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's this big and the nubs are this big mm-hmm. and it could be this material. But like, moving that into production like something mm-hmm. that's actually digestible for a factory is a totally different thing that was that was a big value part because I and, and also I got extremely fast at CAD like I was extremely fast at SolidWorks and then wrapping my brain around when when I have like a drawing or an idea of a product wrapping my brain about how I'm going to approach that in the 3D world so the feature tree is very well organized mm-hmm. so I can modify it and and tweak it without it exploding and you know throwing a bunch of codes and whatnot so yeah. like I, I started to figure out the order of operations of catting something and like um yeah manufacturability for like injection molding metal fabrication stuff like that yeah and it's like a, a- this is a tip that I personally would have for anybody who's trying to launch a product. Um, if you're trying to develop a unique product, if you're not an engineer yourself mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. have actual background in like engineering or an engineer like Jason who has taken cat taken cat drawings to production lines, definitely pay somebody to get their advice. Because yeah. if if you don't, you could be because the factories. A lot of times they'll just say yes, 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 or like, oh, they'll, or they'll Especially randomly say China. no. Yeah. 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 I would say, I, yeah, definitely. There's, well, there's so many unknowns and challenges that you deal with when you're catting or like you're creating a product when it comes to like the engineering and manufacturability. Uh, one of the other big things that I learned over time, because it just, it was at the beginning, it was really just me and engineer. Uh, over time, I added another engineer and then I added a designer, you know, and then um, added, project management and, you know, kind of scaled outward like that. But what are the challenges that I realized started to come up later as I grew the business and grew the resources and things started going from development into manufacturing is the, um, it's like a game of telephone. You go from a designer, yes, industrial designer, and they go through their process and they're setting the user experience, the, um, you know, developing for a specific user. They're, you know, obviously the aesthetic, the color material finish, all that, the ergonomics, whatever details that are important to them. And, and they, val- the they value it so much. Yeah, and they, they care, you know, and then it goes to an engineer um, which if they're the right type of engineer, they will do what they can to achieve all those goals that they had as a designer. And then it'll go from that engineer overseas to a manufacturer. And it's extremely probable that you're going to like lose a lot of those details, you know? And I knew that like, you know, from the beginning, I always wanted to add manufacturing and, you know, 
obviously that was like very difficult to do over time and I'll get into that. But like, <laughs> but, but one of the reasons why I thought it was important is because I didn't want to lose what, what that, that product that was built with intention mm. down the road when it gets into manufacturing. I'd see, I didn't know that was your reason for doing Onyx, Onyx 360. Yeah. yeah. The, and the reason why that split off is because I had founded that mm. with a partner at the time. And in doing so, you know, he was over there. So I had the the entry, you know, the way to like set up an office over there because he yeah. was there. And uh, he moved from Utah to um, China. Wow. So I had I had the resource there and I had clients that I knew I could do the manufacturing for. So it was like an easy way to get in. Did he speak Chinese? No, not at all. Okay. Yeah, so... I think it's an overrated skill, if I... Yeah, and, and I mean, more, more and more of the resources in our industry have English speakers too, right? Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I mean, he was over there. This is probably what? This is in 2017. Okay. So I was like four years, three or four years in, you know, Um yeah, four years in, I think, since I started it. And, and again, to to this point, you had just been doing CAD drawings. On you the all side, do, kinda, yeah, like. doing design, engineering, and like you know, doing the development portion. And we would do it where either the companies we did it for had their own resources to onboard manufacturers, or I had other relationships with people that were doing the manufacturing portion, portion, and I would pass the project off to them. But they would, you, you know, I would immediately lose what that initial value was. Mm, yeah you know, without having it under one roof or at least um, under one like process or, you know, communication standard or whatever. Right. Um, so, and, and you, you genuinely, genuinely want those products to succeed. Yeah. And well, and, and the founders have a vision and they have, they accept something early on and they get, you know, th they get attached to it. They, they get prototypes and they validate what they're trying to solve with those prototypes and stuff. And it's like, and then if you get into manufacturing and they add, nasty screws and stuff like that and whatnot like and make it you know just just further away from what that original intention was like that can that can hurt their feelings and make it difficult for them yeah you know, they don't they're not stoked you know when they get that first sample they're like, yeah. what the hell is this we're taking steps backwards now so i try to try to prevent that um so yeah so i went out to china a few times and we built that office over time and funneling all of our clients when they got past the engineering over there, sourcing a factory, onboarding factory, working through DFM, while still trying to be as influential as possible through the DFM process without losing control of the original intended product. Mm. Um, yeah, and that grew. Last year, I purchased the the rest of the business from that partners and I own the rest uh, okay. of that because I also felt... So, sorry, you said last year you did. Last year, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm. So we, we went at it for a while and it was... Everything was fine and everything, but I just felt like I was once again like losing that flow. And then I think what happened is I started to get protective of the relationships that I have with the clients as well. And mm. when we passed it over to the manufacturing team, which was built in a separate entity, yeah, I think I was like, and the clients would come back and not be in the happy silo. with the experience and whatnot, and the mm. customer support and all that. And I was like, the only way that it's going to be done to the standard that I have at Klugonics and the development side is if I own that side too outright and I leave that side outright. So I made that big decision to do that. Wow. So now today how, I... How, how has that been? One. Uh, it's been fantastic. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, I sleep at night again. Like I don't... <laughs> I'm, I'm more confident in what's going to happen down the road. And we're continuing to refine and build, like work on the processes and stuff because it's like, you know, there's so many touch points and there's so many opportunities for that to still happen where you like lose the intention of the design or 
Um, you know, other problems at the manufacturing level, the production level with, you know, QC issues, all that yes. type of stuff, like yeah. how that is all handled, how it's communicated to the clients um, and how we build solutions to solve the problems that are going to come up because you're making a product, right? It's unavoidable. You can't really like avoid problems, you know, is like, that's the most important thing. Now, so th this is getting closer to one of the questions that I want to ask and mm -hmm. uh, about Plugonics and Onyx, but mm -hmm. so I personally, I've seen so many like sourcing mm -hmm. and product development guys around and like, it's, it's the same general person, like the same archetype or whatever. It's, they mm -hmm. speak Chinese. They've been the sourcing guy for a while. And it's just, it's simply because they can interface with the factory in Chinese. Mm -hmm. So I've seen them launch and fail importing and product development businesses. And, um, you know, I've also sourced and imported products as well. Mm -hmm. why, why does Klugonics specifically have such a good reputation? And like, what do you attribute your success to mm -hmm. despite Utah being such a saturated hub for like sourcing guys? Well, well, well mainly probably because like, I would say 30% of our clientele is in Utah. Like I haven't focused on Utah, you know, and I think mm. because it's saturated and I like saw that versus the way we acquire and build relationships with the customers is like we could go to trade shows all over the country and, and internationally and stuff like that too. Um, but in service wise, I think because we were built with the development side first versus a lot of people work backwards and add development, there's not as much emphasis on the development. 100%. I think that's an advantage as well because usually the development's added as an afterthought. You know, I, oh, so I used to, I had like a fork in the road in my career path where mm -hmm. I was, um, so I was, I was doing a lot of sourcing and importing. Um, mm -hmm. and I, my fork was, okay, either I go down this path and go all in, like mm -hmm. as I wanted to be like the product development guy, I had all these mm -hmm. wacky ideas I wanted to bring to market and I had good sourcing background or I go the software route. Um, I decided to go the software route yeah. just cause I, I think I was, I was a lot more passionate about that. Yet, yeah. My passion for products and like consumer products and building them stays. But what I can say, like knowing that industry is mm. you have to have somebody like Jason mm. who understands and is genuinely driven by how like a product works, mm -hmm. how it's created. And then you have to have the structure of a company where it owns both the pre-production and they also care about post-production. Yeah. Like that. Well, and, so and, and a lot of people go or they have a industrial designer, they create designs and it goes to an engineer and the engineer and the designer might be disconnected where they're siloed. And it's like that game of telephone. And then it goes to, you know, they find a factory in Alibaba or something, right? Yep, and yep. you don't know who it's going to, right? Goes over there and then they have their own perception of it. And they're likely not going to have the original intention from that designer, you know, their thought process of why they did something a certain way and why something's so important, you know, and, and that stuff will get lost. Yeah, no, yeah, 100%. It, and they have to, like, care about it, too, you know, versus just like, oh, it'll, okay, go for it. It'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Just do it that way. It's fine. It'll save $2 a unit, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Because, you know, in something like, you know, on the e-commerce side and the brand side, like... um in China, culturally, they're like, oh, make it cheaper, make it for less, sell quantity, quantity, quantity. When I see a lot more companies 
moving towards making something that's very premium. It's going to last a longer amount of time. They're okay paying a little bit more for the better packaging, the better materials, the, you know, all those, the, the extra steps and whatnot to create that premium product and sell it for a premium. Um, and they're also okay with the, the more steady growth versus just getting something that sells high quantity and likely is going to have a, like a shorter life cycle. You know what I mean? That's that's why I'm so pumped about my brand that's going to be coming out pretty soon. Mm-hmm. It's it's called Ergo. Mm-hmm. It's I've I've talked to you about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's like a it's a high end baby pet gate brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I I totally agree. And actually, I just pain, bought a really points. crappy baby gate. I'll tell you about too. Oh yeah, <laughs> man. Oh, I can't. Our our final sample, or excuse me, final prototype is mm-hmm. going to be done uh, next week. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I've I've lived what you were just describing. Cause so I I I do an outsourced engineer. Mm-hmm. So I outsourced him. I found him from Upwork. Mm-hmm. Um actually a really smart guy. Yeah. Um he's he used to be the engineer for uh Rustica. Mm-hmm. Rustica oh, yeah, hardware. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name has been yeah. a really nice guy. Um I'm really scrappy in how I develop products. Yeah. Well, you know um, you know enough about the process to be able to manage it. Uh, that's that's what I was about to say. Like, yeah. if if I didn't have the sourcing background, mm-hmm. I pro- I would have just gone with Kugelix. Yeah, you've done it because carrying at that last like fifty percent, you know, because like when you have a concept and then like a prototype, that's like one thing. That last fifty percent is the hard part, and if you could manage it through that, you could solve a lot of those problems I talked about. And if you could communicate and know how to communicate to the factory and know what tools and resources you need to communicate to that factory. Yeah, like you can solve those problems and do it that way. But it's just it ta- it does take like uh, you have to go through it and see all the failures that happen throughout the process many times to be able to do that. You know, and what you've done, obviously. With, yeah. Well, know. also back back to Kugonics, mm-hmm. um, you guys at least from I I talk to a lot of people in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have a good rep in, That's in good. Utah. I hope so. Um, <laughs> I don't, why, I don't, why, do, why do you have such good because i don't so, pay, honestly that's great to hear i i i wish i i should pay more attention to it i feel like i stay secluded in my little building you know what i mean <laughs> but that's great to hear yeah. yeah so i um that's always shocking to me that it, it, if somebody in like a high pain industry so for any of you guys who don't know developing a product like you constantly miss deadlines pre-production it's so hard uh, there's constantly issues it's like it's that should be the expectation is like we are going to run into a thousand issues Mm -hmm. how can we solve this the Mm -hmm. most efficient way how do we pivot how do we like that's product development and that's manufacturing they're like high pain industries so to have a good rep in those industries is uh it's really impressive yeah i appreciate it yeah it's hard to make stuff dude what, what what do you attribute that to? Because I remember I, so I ran a sourcing agency or mm-hmm. is a white glove sourcing division for MadeInChina.com. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's it, just always issues. It's fire and, after fire after fire. Yeah. I, and, I think the the biggest skill is how you handle fires. You know, and that's even something we still work on today is it's not just how do you put out the fire, but also how do you communicate 
and present solutions about the fire to the customers. Okay, d- dive, dive into that. Yeah, because they're give so me an example? passionate about their brand, their company, their product. They're stocked out of inventory. That's very important that this gets here on that time to restock, whatever it might be. And when issues come up, you know, and this is something we still work on the team in China, for example, because they're so blunt. Like, oh, it's going to be delayed. It's going to be delayed three months. And that's it, right? And that's an email they wake up to and they're freaking out what's going on. Why is it delayed? And they call Jason. Well, they they usually will call, they'll call the U.S.-based account manager, right? So they have a, a person in their normal time zone to talk to. And if that account manager hasn't spent the time with the, you know, purchasing manager, the project manager in China that have already had discussions and figured out the root of the problem with the factory throughout the day before. Yeah, you don't just react with yeah. the customer like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh. Like, like, so that's one of the things I'd rather, instead of it going directly to the client, you know, I'd rather go through that communication standard. So actually, it's David or Rachel or Larry calling the client and going, this is what we ran into last night. Here's the cause of the problem. This material did this, or, you know, uh, the mold ran into this issue, but they mm-hmm. fixed it or whatever. And here's three potential solutions. And this is how it can affect your timeline, worst case scenario, but this is like best case scenario. And this is what we're going to do to make sure that it hits the best case scenario. And it's like, if they hear it like that, they're going to receive that information so much different than an email that says, sorry, you're going to be late. You know? Oh yeah. So, oh, so I think that's like, um, and we we are always like putting effort into making sure that that's the type of experience they have. But that's difficult, you know, and how many problems come up. But I think that's an important part of our service, and I I I take that very seriously. So I actually at Maine China we did the exact same thing as you. Yeah. So we had a U.S. based account rep mm-hmm. that managed accounts, and then we had a like a China sourcing specialist. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good. you got to have both, right? Yep. And and those two teams need to be like locked at the hip, you know, where they're constantly communicating and know both sides because usually the US-based resource really understands the client, their needs and has that relationship. And then the pers- the team member in China has the same type of relationship with the factory, right? So it's like you need that and then those Two people when they're communicating, they need to be like tied together. Okay, like I cannot wait to dive in here. So I, mm-hmm. the communication it, when you're sourcing products, mm-hmm. the communication between the factory, your China team, the account manager in the United States, the client himself mm-hmm. or herself, mm-hmm. that is difficult as shit yeah it's very and, difficult in fact like i i built a whole soft like custom software around that for me in china mm-hmm. to use like what what tech stack do you guys actually use to because for for those people listening like the problems that we ran into mm-hmm. was there's at each layer not only is it going to be a different language mm-hmm. but the data that you show to the customer could have a rule of markup like okay yeah. you can't you can't just like send this it's got to be marked up 15% for this or like yeah. there's rules and stuff like so how have you guys solved that problem i mean i would say we're still working on it right uh, the, we we are i mean wechat is a very common tool but there's a yep. lot of problems with wechat right like uh it doesn't have a good data log and like referring back to stuff it's not what i see as a source of truth you know before it was like okay 
if a decision is made on WeChat, then it needs to be followed up with an email to document the decision to make sure that everybody's on the same page and confirmed, you know? So like, that's one way to solve it. Um, communication wise, we're actually switching our team in China and the US team to everybody's on Slack. Uh, okay. And it's actually been working out pretty well. And we're like, we're basically, we just push so them over. There's no Slack. firewall issues in China. No. Like, and and, oh, and okay. we always thought that was a problem. Interesting. And um, no, it hasn't been I like, it's fine. Like it's, I mean, sure. There's a little bit lagging, but it's fine. Like it's not as bad as we assumed it would be. And we also have like, you know, there's VPNs and stuff. There's like ways yeah. around that. Um, the other thing um we're starting to push on implementing is Asana, which will be more of a challenge uh, okay, with the firewall. Um, but, you know, we've been testing it with our lead PMs and getting them there because we've used Asana for years on the development right. and basically using Asana for resource management, task management, um, like all the project management where we're, we're using that software to like its fullest. And that gets it to the point where we pass it off to the the team in China. And now what we've been working on is implementing it from that back end as well um, for, you know, having it be the source of truth. Yeah. And I, I think over time, and that takes so long to implement a process, especially in China where culturally they like spreadsheets and like, mm. you know, Microsoft folders. And nothing pisses me off more than when I get an email that has a picture of our folder system with an arrow pointing at what folder I need to find something in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we've been working on. And then, of course, like Dry, you know, a whole different tech stack. Um, but, um, yeah. Well, now we're using Luminous, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah for Dry. Yeah, which Katie's oh, yeah. Katie's loves it. Yeah. You know? We're we're super jazzed. Yeah. Uh, we, we just started implementation. Yeah. Um, She's very excited. She talks about it in the operations meetings and... We're starting this week in Luminous. That's awesome. Yeah, so, and do without that skew vault and stuff, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. All right, we, we, will, we will get to Dorai. Um, yeah. I, so before you even get into that, mm -hmm. um, I again, just because I have a background in supply chain and mm -hmm. sourcing and product development, mm -hmm. um, what is, like, I'll, I'll, I'll share one of my stories, like, failure stories, mm -hmm. like, super embarrassing or, like, maybe... Oh, yeah. Very serious, like catastrophic, that mm -hmm. like really impacted you. So I'll share two real fast, just mm -hmm. to kind of like open it up. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I hope you can share a couple too. I'm sure, sure you have so many. Yeah, <laughs> like this week, I think I can think of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> so the, the, there's this. Okay, so first one. When I was new to sourcing um, and interfacing with a factory, and just all the processes that you know more than me need to happen like you know a pre-production sample you need and, and and you have to get one so you can compare it to the production sample, like mm -hmm. a third-party inspection service so i we, i bought like 500 blankets for a client mm -hmm. and were they, they weighted just, blankets or no it wasn't weighted just blankets regular it was blankets? just like a regular blanket there was and, a craze for those you know so I yeah <laughs> uh, uh, i have source weighted blankets though yeah. but the, they just need the basic printing mm -hmm. on it mm -hmm. and they sent the design over we did it. We did. We sampled it. Got it. Everything looked good. Mm -hmm. Before they started production, we we doubled. Like they sent us a picture. Double check. Like, yep, looks mm -hmm. good. They produced the units. Now, for most people, like, it, there's third party inspection services. There's a zillion of them, and there's also like factories will do their own inspection. Mm -hmm. I didn't use a third party inspection service, and somehow. 
the factory, not only did they manufacture the completely wrong design, mm. and but when the so this one had been sent straight to the client, we didn't mm. cross stock or do oh. any QC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he opens it up, and it's totally different design after paying importing everything everything had all been paid and months or timeline all that and i i had trusted the fact like the factory's inspection and uh never did i do that again Mm -hmm. um second story real fast is i got ninety thousand dollars stolen from me Mm -hmm. um with uh from a factory in the ppe craze that's a totally separate story oh yeah um, i yeah i gotta thankfully i didn't even try to get into that but i i had a partner of mine do that and it, it failed but yeah i'm I, I mean i i remember a very early problem one of my first big ones um and it was for a company of a a, a, a client that is also a friend you know um which sucks we made the the cash truck pads they they make like the the tailgate pads and they have like you fold your tailgate down oh, you have okay. bikes and stuff and they have little seats that flip up yeah you know and coolers and local company and they're buddies of mine, so this made it even worse. But we did the first production run. And this is when I had, this is before I had a QC team. Because I have QC, QA in-house as the third party, and we do that now. But this is when I think we had three employees over there in, okay. chi- in our China office. So, like, you know, for example, April, would she would go do the QC and QA. And they have this lock that it locks to your tailgate so people can't steal them. Because a lot of people steal those truck pass. And um, they mounted the buckle upside down and, oh. and riveted it to the thing and imported them. So we got them all the way here. And um, how, how many? All, oh, like it was, um, I don't know, maybe like 1,500 units or something like that. They, I mean, they're big items. So thankfully they didn't, you know, it wasn't tens of thousands. But to replace a rivet, and these are like stainless, like heavy duty rivets. Like, I mean, we were talking, we have to drill them out and all that stuff, right? Oh, so to repair gosh. it, I we, we tried two methods. One, I had a 3PL that I was working with that was doing their fulfillment where we would go and do it there. And I set up the process where we would bore out the rivets, flip it, and then put like a binding post and lock tight it and screw it tight. And and they started doing them and they all failed because they weren't tightening them. They probably had lower oh, no. team members. And this was your buddy. Experience. Yeah, and so so the first fix failed, and of course I'm paying for all the fixes. So I, you know, I, I think I spent like fourteen grand on that first fix, and that failed. Um, so that so we're like, okay, that didn't work. So thankfully, we then decided, okay, we're riveting these, like they did in production. So we needed to find a riveting machine, and if, like we're in Utah, there's like you know no riveting machines that are like at that level until we found uh, a boot manufacturer. Uh, a boot uh, manufacturer. Yeah, like making ski boots. So they're doing all the rivets mm. for the buckles and stuff. Yeah. And this guy, you know, he had a, a small shop and he did stuff for like, you know, like Burton bindings and he did like a few ski boots. Um, he he was nice enough to let us, he, he did the riveting for and replaced them all. But there was still like another like 15 or so grand that we spent wow. on it. So I like lost all that money, but... You know, we we fixed the problem, but at the end of the day, too, like the relationship was tarnished. Oh, oh, the relationship no, was tarnished. Yeah, like, they, they, you oh. know, I, I mean, mean I we say friends after that and we've had but, other stuff, too, but it's like, no, they don't want to manufacture with us. We did design work for them afterwards. 
And part of that relationship was tarnished was See, not just necessarily me because we, we, we stayed buddies, but also like some things were said by, you know, the, the you know, partners and stuff that might have tarnished it at the end of the day. But like, mm. yeah, it was very painful. And I, I always look back and, you know, hopefully never make okay. a mistake like that again. But this is, uh, let, let me tell you though, like, this is why you have a good rep though. Cause most, so. most companies, was, yeah. like the, the fact that you did all of that, you actually care about the end result. Um, most companies would not, do that yeah, well, especially like, oh, chinese well, companies okay well i'll i'll try to i'll see what i can get back from the manufacturer yeah. and let you know or like oh yeah. you could do this or this it would be very apologetic but mm. the fact that you dove in spent as much money as you needed to fix it like mm -hmm. that's actually a very very commendable yeah and um, and sometimes you know and and the thing about like getting factory credits and stuff like that is a lot of times can be a good solution um mm. you know but it's like it only matters if the the customers like ordering consistently, and because you got to think on the factories and they're like they've only placed one order with us, you know. And a lot of times we'll get them to like give a credit, and it only ben benefits them later. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, that that's always like a hard conversation. But we go and push on it, and we'll do the whole dance with the you know I'll send Patrick in. He he's my uh, GM over there that I've run in it, and like send Patrick in the PMs, the QC team, purchasing team, and we go in and do the whole push and like this is what we need. This is how you're going to give it to us, and blah blah mm. blah blah blah. But that only goes so far, you know. But so for for people listening, where some actual takeaways on the nuts and bolts of manufacturing like mm -hmm. a, a common things that i'm hearing here are like your lessons a lot of time were in pre-production and like the intersection of engineering and manufacturing like mm -hmm. giving cad drawings to a manufacturer well, making the, sure it the problem with that one with that pad is that was the second production run oh yeah they didn't make that problem on the same the first one what what do you think could have prevented it um having like more qci because if it's just mm -hmm. april there doing the test like i mean she's got a lot of other stuff to test like yeah check, yeah like, seams and you know things can be missed and stuff you wouldn't think the factory would mount something completely upside down yep you know what i mean so yeah that was tough i remember we we facetimed with the factory when we were going through the problem with them and they were showing how they did it and they literally pulled one up mounted the buckle and they mounted it upside down when they were showing us how they did it. And I was like, you did that one wrong. And the guy's laughing. I'm like, you should not be laughing right now. Yeah. That's cost you know? 30K. <laughs> but, but, but the good thing is nowadays, like, because like I've hired a very experienced QC leader and then his team, like their attention to detail is incredible. So really the goal is to catch it before it leaves the factory floor. And that's also why we, we, keep the balance payment where the client doesn't pay the balance payment until we go and inspect it because our goal mm. is always to catch things before but also if we pay the balance payment too early to the factory then they have no reason to fix it and we can hold that balance payment over their head until right. they repair yeah. the issues so like if we reject it um which it happens you know here and there then they one they fix it fast because they need that balance payment um and two, we could, yeah, solve the problem quickly. And we, it's so much easier for them to solve it if they just get it back in the line and fix one's item or whatever, depending on what the problem is. But, um, 
that's that's a big portion of why we don't see that as often anymore. Interesting. Yeah, and some problems are much bigger than others, and the perception of problems are smaller and bigger than others. Yes. You know what I mean? Like a a, cus, a client that's new, that's maybe never made something, and they have like a 1% defect rate, like that's incredible, right? Yep. Especially on a first or second or third production run. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing, right? But to them, they have a customer complain about an issue. Jason, and they freak I thought out. we were supposed to get this. And it's like, you know... I don't mean, like, I don't want to be harsh, but that's, like, really good, you know? Now we know that problem existed. Mm -hmm. It was only 1%, and that's going to go onto our QC doc in the future. So that standard is now part of your normal process moving forward. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, these are all new things. And, like, especially if you're doing a complex product, like, mm -hmm. the, the things that are uncovered. And, like, be grateful mm -hmm. it's a low defect rate for that one thing you uncovered. Like, it yeah. could have been 5%. Like, yeah. Yeah or, yeah, or more. Right or a hundred percent like those truck pads, you know. <laughs> so I, I I really like it that you you take full responsibility and you want to from the mm -hmm. start to the finish. Yeah. And like for example, when I got that ninety thousand dollars stolen from me, that was in like the PPE craze. Yeah. yeah. Um, because we were doing like a distribution company at the time, and doing like masks and stuff. Uh, so we did nitrile gloves, ASD okay. certified. I think we did gloves. gloves once too, and it got it got um, it got uh, picked up in Europe through customs and taken away. Yeah, it was insane. Like that's we could do a full podcast on that. But like, mm -hmm. long story short, um, got ninety thousand dollars stolen from me from a factory that I had already done business with. Mm -hmm. um, Oh. It was in in Vietnam, actually. Mm -hmm. So, um, we we won a three hundred thousand dollar contract with um, a hospital, mm -hmm. um, and they sent the deposit over to us, and then we wired it straight the, straight there, like contract set up and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, then, like crickets, they went dark. They they went dark, and he also said, like, oh. Because he he was in this deal, he was kind of like a trading factory, mm -hmm. or excuse me, a trading company where mm -hmm. he he was just like going and doing business with the factory direct. Mm -hmm. And if you know, like at that time, that actually happened to a lot of people. Oh yeah, um, especially well, in Vietnam. It, it, yeah, they had barriers up. They were afraid. Yeah, and 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 it was like there was a time where ASTM certified nitrile gloves for hospitals was literally like gold. Yeah. And so that ninety thousand dollars, I can relate to that responsibility because. Um, I saw so many people with in that PPE craze, like the people who didn't take responsibility just sort of like declared bankruptcy. And like, yeah. we, like, it was my life's mission the next couple of months. Like, we're going to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Like, that's gone. It's stolen. Guess I got to make $90,000 as an entrepreneur. And you can't say sorry, you lost the deposit. No. And, <laughs> well, you, there were people like yeah. declaring bankruptcy and saying, yeah. oh, sorry, yeah. like I yeah. don't know what you want me to do. We, like, I just hunkered down and mm. actually went to $3 million in sales within three months. Mm -hmm. And we made the $90,000 back and oh, that's more. Fantastic. And we were able to pay them back. Selling PPE. Yes, so yeah. we 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 figured out a way to actually get a hold of nitro gloves, mm -hmm. not overseas. Overseas was the biggest shit show ever. Yeah, but there's chaos over there. It, if you could act in California, there were legitimate suppliers that were getting their hands on legitimate ASTM certified gloves. Mm -hmm. The problem is they're really expensive. They sure. were selling them for 
you know, $16 a box. And then, but the factory pricing at that time was $11, $9 a box. So we got into billion dollar um, hospitals and it was just through being honest. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, I know you're getting pitched about this box of gloves that they're selling for $11 a box. I have something tangible sitting here in the United States and mm-hmm. I can give it to you for $21. Like, yeah. and we were, we weren't even price couching. It was like, it yeah, was, that's reasonable markup. It was, it was, it was a reasonable markup. Like typically yeah. it was like 10% mm-hmm. at most 20%. And like that won in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah. That, I think that wins. I, I relate to that responsibility. And mm-hmm. another question I have for you is, one of the reasons why I got out of the product development sourcing game for clients mm-hmm. is like I would take that on so much. And oh, it, yeah. It, oh. yeah. How, how do you deal with the stress? I, I honestly, the biggest thing I do is I just have to, I trust my team and just like, if they know if a fire is big enough, they need me, they'll come to me about it. But like, I can't let that all get to me too much. The most important thing to me is like, if a client is in a really bad shape and needs some time with me, then that's what I would focus on. But yeah, I can't let all the little problems get to me. Got it. So you've, you've kind of put up some barriers. Yeah, I have so like a barrier. Everything. Yeah, like for me, it's like the, um, even what like the clients that I've been working with for like six years, seven years, it's like the relationship I have with them is like, we're just friends and have a great relationship. They work with my team, but when we're together, we're not talking about mm-hmm. the work yeah. stuff so much, you know? We'll talk like strategy and stuff like that and the e-commerce side with Darai. So I have like, like that experience and whatnot. But like, yeah, I, I think really I just, I've learned to, to delegate and remove it from my mind and trust that it's going to be okay. Because if I don't, yeah. Like the, that little fires come up and it's just is what it is. And when a big fire comes up, I'll step in, you know, but it's yeah. not as, it's not as often. I think my team does a good job of preventing it from being massive fires all the time. Well, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad you've been able to like graduate to that level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's I, good. you know, I'd say that was <laughs> definitely something that, you know, people I've worked with in the past, they would get all in on everything all the time. And they were just a ball of stress. Mm-hmm. Got it. And I just couldn't let it, I just never let it get to me. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but yeah. Let's yeah. let it go. I, sh- I just remember carrying around so much anxiety mm-hmm. around all of the little things that can happen between yeah. manufacturing and then like. I mean, when you're manufacturing a thousand SKUs, you can't do that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't even know how many SKUs. I know we're like probably over that, but still it's like, yeah, you can't, I, I would explode. It's, you know, it's funny. I I brought the same, like that same issue into Luminous at the beginning mm-hmm. and like, um, I, I was, I, I needed to be handling all the counts at the beginning. I needed sure. to be well, you're learning line. and building based on what you're learning. Exactly. So and that. Yeah. so that was the, that was a good thing. In fact, that's like my secret weapon mm-hmm. to understanding the market better than my competitors. Um, mm-hmm. cause I was so in the weeds of all different types of mm-hmm. warehouses. And yeah. Especially while you're like literally in that build phase. It's that's, that is important. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I've had to learn also how to like put up those barriers. Like, no, we have a customer service team for these mm-hmm. things and this is how it filters. And mm-hmm. like, that's, that's why, that's why Luminous has an amazing, incredible CTO. Like mm-hmm. you, you have to trust people eventually. And um, yeah, and they make their, I mean, they make pro- their own mistakes and learn too. And you have to like, let them do that as well. 
and they'll also do yeah. things way be- some things way better than you. Oh, totally. So. Yeah. Okay. Now I I I do want to change topics a little bit now that mm-hmm. I feel like we've covered Klugonics pretty well and yeah. like your engineering background. Um the type of person you are like you're like a gunslinging like engineer product guy with tons of experience mm-hmm. um so now that we've talked through some of the failures some of the mm-hmm. the, the hard stuff i want to talk about dry mm-hmm. um you guys are crushing it i love your brand thank you yeah um oh that's a kelsey my wife okay yeah yeah it, there's a lot, lot that, to dive that, in that was the piece i was always missing because it's like I, uh, my, my, the, the back end side of building products I could do all day. I always wanted to start a brand cause I see the, I saw the, the service and stuff. Like I do that for the rest of my life. Like I like it and I enjoy it. The, um, the building a brand I saw as a way to build something that I could like sell one day and stuff like that. Right. Yes. Like, so there, in, in, you know, that's part, a big part of the goal, but I never had, an idea that stuck until Durai, and this is in 2017 that I found the material. So do, do you attribute that, like the, the first one that really stuck, do you attribute mm. that to Kelsey or Well, she was the reason why to... it was able to stick. You know, I found mm. the material, but what I would have done with it would have been like a Kickstarter and made some money and then but we'll, we'll probably lost money no at the end way. of the day. You know what I mean? Okay, that's Versus so Kelsey, when I showed her the material and she you know, did some research on the diatomaceous earth. Her background is in, you know, brand strategy, UX design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I showed her the material. She did some research. She was like, well, this is natural. It's healthy. You know, it contributes to a healthy home. That's important to me. And um, she's like a big marathon triathlete type, oh, you know, very health conscious and all that stuff. So it's like, um, and she had quit her day job and started doing the agency thing. So we saw like, okay, let's, let's start this thing and do a Kickstarter and see what happens nice. um, with some convincing. But at the end of the day, she came around when she did the research and, and believed in the product and the material and what we could do with it and saw the opportunity that I did. But she's the, the anal, like build this perfect brand that communicates to our specific mm-hmm. customer, keeps everything consistent and tight. And, um, she takes that very seriously. Um, even today and today she's not involved in the day by day. She stepped back and took a day job at Google. Well, yeah, it's Alicia and Katie. Yeah. So, so that, and what happened is it like when Darai started to really grow, I think because she, it's so important for her it to be perfect every time and like building a business is just not perfect every time (laughs) it wear it on her a lot. The operations. Yeah. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. And, um, but she was like, I just want, and we were also talking about having a, a baby and stuff. Uh, right. Yeah. So like, you know, she's like, well, I'm just going to take a day job. And she got one at Google, you know, I was like, oh, okay, that's an yeah, easy, I'm just, easy just casually job, like, right? I'll just go, and she's doing, go to Google. Right? Right? She enjoys it, you know, um, but she still acts as like this advisor. But at the very beginning, like I wouldn't have been able to do the brand and, and I learned following along building to what it means to build a brand. Okay. This, this, this is so cool right here because um, I feel like a lot of the entrepreneurs watching, even if you have an existing brand, mm-hmm. like understand your strengths and weaknesses. So I just highlight, for example, like I have to outsource engineering. I might not have to outsource something for the mm-hmm. the sourcing manufacturing mm-hmm. side. And then what Jason was just talking about, like, d- you know, dry without Kelsey and without y'all's your co- cooperation mm-hmm. could have just been like a 
freaking stone yeah. that you like trying yeah. to sell B2B or something like Yeah. And it would have been like fine, you know, but it would never have been the what it's become today and what it's growing towards, you know. And then once it got to the point where it was like, you know, like 10 plus million, like really growing in revenue and stuff like that, then it was like, okay, need to hire a CEO. Because Kelsey stepped back, I can't be the CEO of both. I shouldn't be the CEO of an e-commerce brand. That's not my skill set, yep. you know. Like I'm good at this. I'll focus on this. And I I found Alicia on a LinkedIn job yep. posting for a CEO. I got really lucky, you know. And also at the same time, well, before Alicia came on, I hired Katie as a director of operations, who she worked for me at Onyx 360. Yeah, and then a job opening opened up at Katie's. I, I love Katie. I love both of them. Yeah. I've interacted more with um Katie. But. Yeah, Katie is like you know, and she is learning at such a rapid rate. She's like the gunslinging operator. She, she yeah, and that's what I've learned. I have to surround myself with because I'm not that. Like I'm a mm. I'm like the leader, uh, set vision type. You know, like I can't. I don't. I can't sit down and do the operations and keep it organized. I'm too messy. But by the way, I can't wait to have Katie on the podcast. Yeah, she'll like be we're, good. Her and I are going to dive into like the nuts and bolts. Well, she, like... She'll have a lot of valuable information <laughs> like what she's learned over the... Because the, the amount she's learned from when she started working with me at Onyx 360, that job opened up and she goes, I want that job. And I was like, you got that job. Oh, that's <laughs> sick. I'm so glad she spoke yeah. up. Like, and it was a touchy subject because she was leaving one company to the other. <sighs> and at the time it was like, you know... Someone wasn't stoked on that, but at the same time, she was like, I love dry. I want to, you know, make that my job. Oh, I love that. Oh, and she, and so then her cool. learning really accelerated because she got to like focus on one company, one supply chain, one product line and stuff like that. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's been great. So bringing on Katie and then hiring on Alicia, you know, she's ex Amazon, ex Walmart. She yep. was at Walker Edison before she came to me. So she had home goods experience and e-commerce, like serious e-commerce growth that yep. company did. And, um, so she had all the boxes checked in, but also like personality wise, she's a leader. She's very positive. She's very, um, yes, people focused and, and she's like just great to work with. It so comes it like, across. Yeah. It was really easy, you know, to make that. So I could really like trust them and I'm, like not as involved. And, and mm -hmm. the thing I stay involved with is like the very top line stuff, you know, when it comes to like financials and whatnot and like very high level strategy. Um, and usually a lot of that is more Alicia and I collaborating mm -hmm. or Katie and I collaborating versus me saying like, this is how it needs to be done. You know, I could really lean on them to also be a big part of those conversations. Um, and I just focus on like, they're like our tightest and biggest client. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they go through Onyx 360, like the Onyx. It's they all, are a client to me. They pay. So cool. They pay my service business. You know what I mean? Even oh, though I own so cool. the majority of both of them, but at the end of the day, it's like, I can't run, you know, Dry, which has now become this monster that would drain. It's, it's all symbiotic. So it has to pay and oh, it's like a client. So cool. You know what I mean? So, um, but what that does is one, I get to sit on the same side of the table as my clients that are growing like an e-commerce yeah. brand. Yeah, oh, I bet that's so valuable. This is what I learned and they're telling us what they learned and like we're bouncing ideas and we have like really rewarding conversations. Um, but also um, it's like, like sitting down with Katie and Alicia and be like, well, what went wrong? What did we do bad? You know, we could like have real and direct conversations about what 
our service is doing wrong. Yeah. And that's like a huge advantage that I have over a lot of my competitors because I get to like literally have a relationship with a client like no one else. I I hope this is okay to bring up, but Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) something that I learned through you guys Mm -hmm. very recently, Mm -hmm. uh, talking to Katie. Mm -hmm. Um, So apparently you've got some mother effing copycats on Amazon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was was because you didn't file for a patent in China in addition yeah. to the United States. Yeah, really it's the sink caddies the the big one and you know it, but you know like that's like just one of the skews, you know, and it still right, sells right. well and stuff, so I'm glad that we've protected all of our other products at the level we did and and like we, look at can you can you dive into that a little yeah. bit? Like how how do you how would you recommend somebody launching a product if they're very serious about it? Yeah. And the good Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I get like like the patent fortress that I focus on for Durai is not only uh, super important to me. And like, we try to get utility design patents. We get them internationally. We get them in China. Um, but also I will fight them. And that's what people do not do. They invest in IP and they're like, oh, it's patented. But yeah. as soon as someone knocks it off, they're like, oh, it's too expensive. Like you got to go after them. And I will go after them. You know what I mean? And that's like, we, as see, mean we, as that sounds, but it's like... I need to protect what we've built and I will fight a patent and get out of it what I deserve. That's the thing. Like my belief on software versus consumer products is very different on those mm-hmm. things because like mm-hmm. um, consumer products, if if you got a design patent because you were the first person to come up with it or mm-hmm. a utility patent that yeah. has like an actual claim mm-hmm. and somebody is clearly copying you and monetizing mm-hmm. off it. Yeah. The, Yes, like yeah, that's why it exists. It. Yeah. That's and we and we really and we try to and, and that's why like we don't skimp on design processes. And we have a new scene caddy coming out that will have a patent that'll be more unique and it'll be we we've added some value to the original design because we've learned from the amount of customers we had what we need to fix on it. Mm-hmm. And we have a new version that'll come out that'll be protected. So if they knock that one off, then I'll just go take them out like flies. Yeah. You know what I mean? They can have the old one. Yeah. I feel con- I, I feel great that we designed that. And that was our design, and and people are knocking off. It's almost flattering, you know. But they can have that. You'll, you'll stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, we can, yeah. we're going to try to be two years ahead on what we have out. Like, and there's a lot of the products that we have that no one will be able to knock off because the utility patents, and the design patents, and the international IP work that we've done. Okay, so some some advice for somebody who's launching somebody something in a very similar industry, like similar price point. Mm-hmm. Um, I I struggle with even. Do I want to sell on Amazon? You know, if so we why? we did way later in the life cycle. We got to the point where we started selling on Amazon for brand protection because people were going on Amazon and the search volume for Durai oh. was so high. We knew that if we weren't the ones at the top of the page collecting on that, got it, then they're going to buy a competitor. Okay, so it was literally just because like oh, brand brand's protection. getting in, and and well, that's the thing, like. So you, I wouldn't say start on Amazon. I would yeah. say go to Amazon when you need to go on Amazon. And we felt we held out as long as we could. It, and it didn't kill our bottom line at all or like our, our or cannibalize our Shopify sales. Well, what's your what's your um, pricing on Amazon versus same. Shopify? Oh, it's the same? Yep. We, we, we keep sales the same pace. Everything follows each other. So how is your contribution margin on Amazon versus Shopify? Because that, that was the, something we already struggled with at Qualtree. Like mm-hmm. the Amazon contribution margin was horrible. It's not because the shipping is so much more efficient these days. Mm. So the shipping's a little bit lower on Amazon. 
Also, do, do you advertise on Amazon? Yep. Okay. Yep. So the customer acquisition cost is is lower. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. But it's hard, the, the amount of data you get out of it, it's hard to know if they knew us from somewhere else and they came through an ad on Dry or whatever. Did they, did they find us on a meta ad? And then they, yeah. you know, so, you know, yeah, the amount of data you get out of Amazon is different. I, I don't think like, I hate Amazon businesses, you know, but we're a business that got to the point where we need to get on Amazon and we're missing opportunity. Got it. Yeah. And and we knew that when we got on and our, our shop by sales stayed where they're at and continue to grow steadily. Right. And then the Amazon still just bolted on top of that. Interesting. It That's didn't really cannibalize our sales. Okay. It was the rollover traffic. Cause people that are like, serial Amazon shoppers and they see a brand on like a meta ad or whatever. They go straight to Amazon. Yeah, they'll go look and if it's not on Amazon, they'll find something similar. But the thing is too, is it's like, because we differentiate as much as we can, you know, like our, like, I think that gives us an advantage that people, if they go on Amazon because they feel safe buying with Prime and stuff like that, they'll do that. There's trade secrets and advantages that we could apply to protect Mm. ourselves in other ways at the manufacturing level. Like if a factory in China finds something difficult to do for a specific product and you say, no, we want to do it and you're willing to pay for the extra, that is another barrier to why they wouldn't want to knock you off and do that for someone else. They would rather find the easier, cheaper way to do it for someone else and they can have it. Yep. So like I think innovation and engineering can also help protect a product. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we move on from Dorai, Like as as you know, as a client of Luminous, like Luminous is our thesis is the modern e-commerce brand, mm-hmm. which I I think Dry is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. They they hit complexity markers really fast. And my stance is like a lot of times, like the evolution of e-commerce company, it's it's a relatively new thing. Like yeah. how you go omni-channel when you go omni-channel mm. when you start selling wholesale mm. when when you start if you're handling the whole process etc cetera, etc cetera. My, my whole stance is always you don't have to go to NetSuite you mm. don't no, have to no, go yeah. to Acumatica Dynamics 365 like these massive systems like what are specifically some of the complexity markers that Dorai hit f- f- from the first time it hit um the goods hit the warehouse and you mm-hmm. started doing fulfillment. Like when, when did things start to break? We were like, Oh man, God, I, I need chip station or mm-hmm. wow. Now I need yeah. skew vault. I think, I think, um, we started with a three PL when we launched, you know, and we did that for, uh, let's see, maybe the first year, two years of the company. Right. And, um, we would see like a lot of issues and stuff like that. But then also we noticed like how much it affected our bottom line with the extra fees and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I took the leap of, of getting to, um, getting our own warehouse, which is the one that you see that. So, so we took that leap and I was like, okay, like, I I really think this is going to add to the bottom line. I, I would say it didn't take us, we didn't really figure out the warehouse efficiently until about, eight months, like a year in or so. I, I think we figured out by the time we hit our first Black Friday in the warehouse. What a, what what software did you use? Like from so the that beginning? was the thing. The, we, we, we knew ShipStation because uh-huh. my buddy Chandler 
um, who had helped in various, he, he's kind of like a jack of all trades. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, he, uh, he always helped like even back at Armor Active is when I met him. We, he worked there. He would work with the shipping and stuff. He worked at, um, Wolfgang, the, the, uh, collar company. Yeah. Yeah. They make leashes and stuff. And he didn't, you know, dealt with shipping and stuff there. So he came in to help me, um, which was helpful because he knew like, okay, ship station, um, you know, at the time we were using a combination of ShipStation and Shopify for inventory, which you know is bad, yep. you know, so it was, that was messy. Uh, then Katie started. Um, and so when Katie came in, that was one of the first problems she was able to tackle. Uh, she worked with Chandler and at the time the warehouse manager we had then, and they shopped around for various softwares for warehouse management. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I think really we just ended up with Skew Vault because out of the options we had, and we we didn't even want to, but it was like really we didn't have many options. The the, yeah. the pickings were slim, and it just made the most sense um, for us. But you know, later we we you know the, the challenges we ran into like were like bundles. Big, this, always a big this problem. Is, this is like right here. The, this is actually. So Luminous, I'm so curious with the complexity markers that mm-hmm. brands run into. We have a whole thesis. We fundraise on this, like mm-hmm. joinluminous.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the the biggest thing that I noticed with Dorai is what a lot of e-commerce companies don't understand is the intersection between your inventory management system mm-hmm. and your order management system yeah. matters big time. Yeah. ShipStation doesn't handle bundles or they don't No, do not well. well. And no. also SKUVALT they have bundling, um, but they yeah. also they don't have like a data auditing tool. And yeah, the way they do buggy. And we we've had to fix a lot of things. Like we'll have a big sale and there'll be like a bundle and this goes out of stock during that sale and then like it screws all this up in the bundle, but the bundle keeps going and then it oversells yep. and all this stuff. Um yeah, there yeah. Over time we've figured it out. Like Katie's figured it out. She she's and, and honestly, it's to the point now where I don't even know what our full tech stack is. You probably know more. It, than yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> but well, that's the thing. Like operators, like Katie. That oh, this is like it's these conversations where it's like she she was using Skewball and ShipStation. They're mm-hmm. supposed to be doing X this, yeah. like, yeah. but she she what she had to do. She just had to hack everything together yeah. to make it work. Yeah, like, the 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 um the connection of all the platforms were not seamless now and they weren't fluid and um i i feel like there's a lot of one-way communication between the platforms versus you know everything syncing together properly and oh they figured out ways to like okay this is going to happen we need to flip this off at this time and we have this many units setting uh plenty of excess stock to prevent you know stock outs and whatnot for like um unnecessary stockouts. Yeah, yeah, like like all those things that um they've figured out, they've figured out over time and a lot of it had to be manually done. You know, and I know they in the marketing and the sales and the the operations meetings that we'll have like, you know, those are the things that Katie and and you know Maddie our VP of marketing and stuff like that, they'll they'll sync up about that type of stuff on the fly and know like we're getting close on this. Let me know when this happens and then I'll do this. And they have to do these things and actively do it. Live. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it so shouldn't it's a, be that way. It's a really common problem. And mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I, I can't wait to have Katie on, like, because mm-hmm. we can dive into like the nuts and bolts of that, mm-hmm. and it'll and be she, a freaking and, blast. And her experience did, is like round up where we started with the bare bones of a Shopify, and then, and oh. then you know, yeah, dude. I'm so I'm 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 actually doing this. I'm with the launch of Ergo, my brand, my baby gate brand. Um, I'm going to do a series like with. We're basically, I'm documenting from the standpoint of a backend system. Like, mm-hmm. here's what I did, scrappy entrepreneur, yeah. to build a product. And, like, all of the phases from project management to purchasing to, like, I'm especially trying to identify mm-hmm. the points where you make a technology decision. Yeah. And I, and I want to lay out all of the competitors, yeah. break them down when it's relevant. And mm-hmm. then, obviously, the the end goal is, like... Use Luminous, like use Luminous for all yeah. this, but uh, well, not everything though. Well, and like going through the demo process and the questions you're asking and all that type of stuff, like do you solve this problem and prioritizing problem solving? Cause not like not, it, yeah, like NetSuite's like, oh, we could fix everything. Ex- and it's exactly. Like, yeah, whatever. Okay. But at the end of the day, it's like you, you have to prioritize your problems that you're solving for and know that, and that's what we had to do with Skew Vault. It's like know that it's not going to solve everything. Um, but like the the problems it does solve for now outweigh the smaller problems and we can yes. adapt to the small problems for now until a better solution comes in. Like with a system, it's it's so funny, like bringing it all back at the end. Like just like you said, in your product development process, mm-hmm. you just need to be curious and put out fire as well and like actually listen. So it's it's the same thing in software and especially I, I would say in Luminous, um, with the clients that we service, it's it's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. most software companies, a fire comes up mm-hmm. and they don't really listen to your feedback. Yeah. They, like just, oh yeah, well, yeah, you could do this or this if you want, or you know, mm-hmm. maybe they eventually fix it. Mm-hmm. But like with Luminous, we have that genuine curiosity on like how can we be the most flexible, easy to use system mm-hmm. on the market for for the modern e-commerce brand. And yeah. Um that's the advantage of software too that I've always seen. Like I've, like I, I'm not a software guy whatsoever, you know. And I think you know that's probably why I'm stuck in the hardware, right? <laughs> like software is so, uh, yeah, I'm just not good with it. But um, the advantage of being fluid and taking advantage of it in that sense is what um, makes good software. So, well, actually, a good example. This will be really fast. A, a good example is like mm-hmm. Katie. Um, we're we're in the welcome call like discovery process um, mm-hmm. before you get like everything going. She highlighted something um, as we were just auditing a process that Skewvault actually did well. You know mm-hmm. that, that she really liked. It was the way that they handled um, inventory deductions directly from Amazon. Yeah, and it was it was something that actually we didn't have, and mm-hmm. like we took that immediately. It's in our next sprint. So like before That's Luminous cool. even goes live for you guys, like those are the types of things, like I'm curious with the whole market, like mm-hmm. we want to create something that has the least amount of friction possible. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Where anybody can jump in and use it. Yeah. Cause there are a lot of, I mean, when an e-commerce brand starts, they, have to be extremely scrappy, right? Like it's, there's not many e-commerce brands that are like funded, like, you know, tens of millions of dollars or whatever. Like most of them are scrappy. Like Dry had to be. Cause like mm-hmm. Dry still has only raised 120 grand in funding. Like it's never, like I've never taken on funding. And that was in 2019. Right. So we've stretched that until now. Right. And 
with that, we've always been scrappy, right? And a lot of times with that, you, the, the team members you're bringing on, like Katie, she, she's never dealt with any of those problems and she's had to figure it all out herself. And if the software, like, she, there's no way she could have taken on NetSuite. You know what I mean? This is, and this, that's why I'm so anti NetSuite is because it, like, honest, it pisses me off yeah. that they're going down market so hard because yeah. oh, they hit I me have, up on LinkedIn all the time. <laughs> well, dude, even Sick just I, so I'm I, in in Utah. I'm I'm decently well connected among the brands, mm-hmm. and every brand that's gone to NetSuite, they're either in a lawsuit with them or yeah. they have the same story. Man, we ended up paying three hundred thousand yeah. dollars extra. And yeah. it's like still not work. Like it, it's a, it's a like a literally the in the thing that would have been hard for Katie. She, I'm she would have figured it out obviously, but the problem was is that she would not have been able to do anything else we needed to do. And that's I'm that, and those are the types of hires that these e-commerce brands are bringing on. They're bringing you know people with operational experience, but it's not like you know I'm not hiring someone that's you know. 300k a year have been operating e-commerce for 15 years you know like you're you're bringing people on and you know that they're going to come in and have to learn with the growth of the brand and the software needs to be able to work for that customer and that that person in that role yeah and netsuite doesn't build with this concept of like what mm-hmm. you just described, like mm-hmm. we're a young company, like it's just Katie and me mm-hmm. and like this one gunslinging guy that's helping. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, NetSuite doesn't build with the idea of the modern e-commerce brand mm-hmm. in mind and they don't build with this idea of friction. So for example, like, oh, I need to fill this order. Well, guess what? NetSuite, you got to like, there's like 16 steps you need to take. Yeah. And Luminous. I've never even seen NetSuite. I don't even want to see it. Oh man, it's like, Yes, it's true. It can mm. do whatever you want, but like sure. the point of luminous is like removing the friction. So like, yeah. so instead of sixteen steps in Netsuite, where you have to custom code and pay an engineer fifteen thousand dollars for mm. your picking process, yeah. in luminous, it's like how can you take that sixteen step process, remove the friction, but still give high level visibility mm-hmm. to Jason? Like, yeah, that's yeah. Dashboards are great. That's all I can look at. I can only look at dashboards. <laughs> <laughs> dashboards and PLs. So, the, by the way, we're running out of time. Um, my, this is my last question for you. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, actually, something that, um, I, I know you and your, uh, your wife went into business together. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has that been doing business with her? Um, oh, it, what, what have you learned? Yeah, um, definitely. We learned a lot about each other. It's definitely been easier as she's taken a j- day job. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now that she's more removed, and I'm still pretty like heavily involved. It's, you know, the conversations we have now are more productive where she'll be like, okay, I saw this. And then I'm able to like understand what she sees and what she sees as being something that needs to be fixed or whatever, like from a brand perspective or whatever. Right. And, and then I can go in and then help, you know, advocate and whatnot. Um, and I think she's seen me do that and that helps with with everything, but yeah, there's definitely challenges, but there are some good things about, we learned, you know, just like we built a business together and now we're building a family together. Mm -hmm. I feel like we understand each other's working styles and that's been helpful and we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely challenging, but what marriage isn't. And, And also it's, there's this sense of like, I have a, 
it's like this sense of like attraction with her because I've, I watched her get scrappy with me and do that, you know? And I mean, she went from making like San Francisco money to like, you know, quitting a day job and starting this brand with me. Now that's love. Yeah. Well, and, and she, and she, you know, really grinded it out and, and was so passionate about it. And I love that about it. And one day, you know, we can, you know, sell that brand or liquidate it. And, and, you know, like, we'll always look back to what we built together. And I think that'll be special, you know? I also want to say, I think it's probably y'all's superpowers that you can, you're out of it where you can give like very high level product and engineering advice, like, Mm -hmm. and especially your, your V2 and V3. Mm -hmm. And then your, your wife can also, like she can give high level marketing advice and you yeah. have competent CEO and operators. Like it's, I do like, it's really well, cool. so the things that Kelsey pays and gets involved with from like an advisory standpoint now is like the, you know, helping, you know, Maddie and Cressley on like website and stuff. And then in, in like brand vision and stuff like that. And then she, she gets involved in the product strategy as well. And she's good at that because she's really good at research. And with her UX background, she like really thinks through the Got user it. experience of product and the brand, you know, is like is represented by its product. So, you know, she's, we're, we're still, it's often that the two of us are in a, a product discussion meeting and, um, and then I'll bring samples home and it's like fun to go home and like, chat about the product that I got, the prototype or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, I would say the amount of time that her and I spend talking about Dorai on a weekly basis is like no more than like two hours a week now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like overtaking our relationship. It definitely used to, you know, which was a problem. Right. And I think over time as she stepped away and we've, we've like figured out a new flow, like two hours of, chatting about it it's like now it's like more positive and fun got than it being like a yeah. stressful startup that we're trying to build together this has and got also, to succeed or yeah. we're so sleeping I, I, I think it's naturally evolved and and strengthened us and then there's definitely like hard times emotionally but at the same time like yeah like it's it's been amazing at the same time i, I like how you said at the beginning like you guys are building a family together mm-hmm. like you're you guys are co-ceos of a family mm-hmm. like so as difficult as that is like a business can't be as difficult mm-hmm. like uh, i don't know yeah i mean she, well the, the thing is too is that like we're both very um uh like she's very type a and a strong personality like myself so you can imagine like uh, two I'm not type A though. Like I'm not, you know, she's very 110% all the way. And I'm like, oh, they'll figure it out. But that's also an advantage because I, I counterbalance that and then she counterbalances that. So I think there's mm. a good balance there. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What would be harder, building a family or a business? I don't know yet. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, our TBD. son Wells is like, 10 months old now so it's like we, <laughs> st- we still have a lot we only have one kid right yeah i'm, I'm friends a, with two and it's like geez i have, I have a seven and a three-year-old yeah um, so you that's different at that point right yeah yeah um, so here's here's the last uh here's my last actually this really is my last question so mm-hmm. i i think you have really pretty eyelashes thanks um, has there uh, ever been a time where me They've been chopped off or something. Oh, yeah. Or... Who told you that one? <laughs> That's a funny story. It's actually Katie. Yeah. Oh, when I was like really little, I, 
I always got so comments funny. on the length of my eyelashes. And I think I was like maybe in like third grade. Yeah, maybe like third grade. And um, yeah, I trimmed them. Because <laughs> my mom, or like my mom's friends and stuff, they'd always be like, look at your pretty eyelashes. Yeah, like, but you look like insane. <laughs> I mean, I trimmed them and they grew back longer. No, so no way. yeah, yeah. So they grew back longer. Females listening, isn't that funny? Be. I've been noticing my son Wells's eyelashes are really long. He must have gotten that from me. That's so awesome. I'll make sure he doesn't trim them. <laughs> but like a little third grader with scissors, you know, that could have been dangerous. Yeah, looking back at it, but uh, so they said that your mom, like at the babysitter at the time, she she was yeah, like bawling out. her yeah. eyes out. Like I'm so sorry. <laughs> she like, freaked out. Yeah, I remember it. I remember the night when. I showed him because I just casually was like, look, look what I did. I, <laughs> you know, and I remember like the doctor, they were like, well, they either might not grow back or they'll grow back longer. And they grew back longer. So it was like, well, lesson learned. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, counterproductive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, we're kind of running out of time. So it's great. Uh, yeah, that's basically it. Um, this was Unfiltered Ops. Thanks for stopping by.